This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and this is part two of David's interview with Tomas Hendrik Ilvis, the former president of Estonia. Has President Volodymyr Zelensky surprised you? Yeah, I th- kind of thought he was going to be a clown. I mean, he was held up, you know, if you recall, I mean, saying, well, you know, in the U.S. you have entertainer Donald Trump, and, uh, and now here we have another, you know, not a reality show star, but a comedian. It's like, okay, you know, well, all right, let's see what happens. And, he, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he didn't evince any great... Um, leadership qualities there you know maybe some issues but generally he was i mean he was he was considered by most people to be a lightweight and has he proven out uh that most people were wrong at this point oh absolutely i mean he's uh i look at him i look at the speeches he gives you know from day one where he said i need ammo not a ride i mean that took a lot of people by surprise, but maybe they thought it was braggadocio or something. But in fact, it has shown it rather it has reflected the attitude of U- the Ukrainian people, which is basically, I don't want to ride, I need ammo. I know for me personally, when I heard him say that, uh, I no longer believe this was going to be three, seven, or 10 days. I at that point believed uh, that Ukraine would fight with everything that it had. I, I actually did not think it would happen in three days anyway. I mean, the, which went against the uh, conventional wisdom. I remember being on a podcast with uh, several experts in the area, and they all thought it was going to, it was right before the war. I mean, it was like, will he do it? And how long, you know, how successful will he be? And I said, you know, if you already know the sort of the history of the uh, anti-Soviet partisans of the late 40s, early 50s, I mean, the Ukrainians fought pitched tank battles against the NKVD. I mean, you know, this is like, you know, we had our partisans here in the woods with their rifles, but these were like, they had like tanks dug into the ground, <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> under haystacks and then they roll out and I mean this is they had like elite elite NKVD troops losing in the beginning to partisans with you know they had a partisan army so I mean with that kind of history the figure they will put up a fight but but they did that more or less uh, they, when they were leaderless. But if you have a strong leader that will bring people to back them up, um, well, 
we get things done. How does Putin have an exit plan? How how can he get out of this mess? He doesn't and have an exit save plan. his face. He doesn't have an exit plan. It was an irrational, egomaniacal plan based on bad information, thinking that he would win anyway. It's a result of his contempt for Ukrainians and uh, this uh, all-consuming desire for a legacy. Well, no legacy, guys. I mean, no, it's going to be when the final costs are going to be tabulated, it'll be a disaster for Russia. Russia has lost its, I mean, well, just for, just because of the NATO enlargement, I mean, already has lost hugely strategically. And in terms of respect, you know, it's, I mean, the, the old, you know, we have Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Tchaikovsky myth, I mean, which is, I mean, 19th centuries, unfortunately, uh, is 130 years ago. It's not the same. And what you have instead, there's a general feeling that Russians are incredibly brutal and barbarian. And, you know, when you read things such as an eight-year-old girl being uh, having seven different DNA strands semen, you go like, this is, this is utterly disgusting. I'm, I mean, it is so revolting. And this is going to carry over to Russians, all Russians. I mean, it already has. I mean, people don't want them here. And this, basically, it's like the attitude towards Germans after World War II. This friend of mine told me about, I don't know if it was his mother or his grandmother, it's kind of that age. But anyway, you know, Estonians and Latvians have very different languages. And because of like basically 800 years of German rule, I mean, the one common language that... Uh, that, uh, that Estonians and Latvians had before the war was German. So there is uh, this two refugees, one an Estonian woman and then a, a Latvian woman, were in a cafe in the Netherlands. And so the only language they had in common, I mean, people didn't learn Russian until the occupation was German and they were conversing in German and then the, uh, the, the cafe uh, owner or whatever came out and threw them out of the cafe because they were speaking German. And even as late as the 2000s, early 2000s, people in the Netherlands, if they heard someone speaking German, would say, give me back my bicycle. Because basically, <laughs> during the Nazi occupation, every single last bicycle was requisitioned and stolen by the German army. I mean, so if you think of that, 65 years after the war, People in the Netherlands saying, "Give me back my bicycle." It's going to be a long time. But basically, when you people hear Russian, they will. Their first thought is, "Oh, is this person going to rape and torture?" I mean, that is an that is an unavoidable reaction after all the news of what the Russians have done in that country, and especially in countries like mine, where they're well, they're fewer and fewer direct memories. But I mean, a fairly good example was is. Uh, there's a fairly prominent uh, IT guy here. You know, it was one of the one of the people who did Skype, which is an Estonian invention. And he called me up after Bucha, 
And he said, you know, all these years I've been saying and telling you that, you know, forget about this Russia problem. They'll be okay. It's just a matter, you know, we're just going to, you know, it'll be all okay. And then he said, and then Bucha happened. And then he told me, well, actually his grandfather, yeah, his grandfather had been uh, one of the victims uh, of a massacre in Estonia in 1940, 41 where they basically, there was a medieval castle and they lined up like uh, 140 people and just machine gunned them to death. I mean, he was just brought there because he was a village councilman. I mean, we see this stuff right now in, in Ukraine where, you know, uh, we just read that yesterday, the day before that, um, that there were, they were orders to shoot people who had mobile phones. I mean, it was the same kind of bizarre, arbitrary action, you know. And so the effect in Eastern Europe has been to to reactivate, rekindle um, the stories that grandpa and grandma told you, which we all were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, you went through it, I understand, but, you know, you're, you're exaggerating, aren't you? Whereas now it's like, uh-uh. Grandma wasn't exaggerating in the least. And so um, basically that is what Putin has basically screwed the, the Russian nation to be hated in Europe. And that they are, I mean, the attitude is that these are barbarians. I mean, I mean that's his great gift to his uh, country. So his legacy is, I'd say, utter trash. One of the things that we've been stunned by is Russian propaganda and the machines behind it as good as they were up until February 23rd, 2022 on digital propaganda as all of a sudden backtracks into the 1970s. It's as if the Kremlin doesn't think that the internet exists. And if there's a takeaway that we've had as a team is the internet, cell phones, everybody has a camera, everyone's got a video camera today. It's impossible to move troops secretly. It is impossible to commit a war crime. It is impossible to go, we didn't do this because the information is coming out in real time. This is the most documented war in global history. How did the Kremlin drop the, it's, it's a cynical question, but how did they drop the ball on this so badly when a year ago they were so good at the disinformation space in the digital world? They're bad because you now have, you have evidence. I mean, they're, they're still just as crazy. I mean, they're, I mean, they, they make up lies exactly the same way they did before. And, uh, I mean, in 2014, I would say 2014 actually is, if you look at the history of disinformation, uh, was the breakthrough year with Crimea, where uh, up till then, up till then, basically, you know, it took, took like three years for Operation Infection, the, the planted story about CIA manufacturing aids it was planted in a communist provincial communist party newspaper in india 
And it took three years to migrate to their Spiegel, where it was picked up with Glee, but then that started this whole thing. Three years, it just had to pass up. The, well, it became instantaneous. And it, or the main factor for becoming instantaneous was A, the creation of, um, or the widespread distribution of smartphones, which basically gave everyone the internet. Before that, I mean, a minor, a very small percentage of the worst world's population had access to computers and the internet. And suddenly, you know, one of these things, and everybody has access to the internet. Followed by the um, uh, followed by the Arab Spring, in which the West all went wild, saying, "Look, with no resources whatsoever, people power, we can topple governments." Uh, and then uh, various authoritarian regimes. But first and foremost, Russia said, well, if you can topple regimes with no resources, what happens if we put resources into it? And so from there on in, you could see, you know, I mean, the first case actually had to do with you know, the war in Ukraine, where a lot of gullible people did like, well, the Russians say this. On the other hand, you know, the West says this and, and the, you know, both sides, it's like it was ridiculous. But really, the first big effect of this was in 2015. It was related to Ukraine, which was the referendum on the association agreement for Ukraine. I mean, the association agreement is kind of like a it's a free trade agreement with uh, added benefits of teacher student exchange. It's not a big deal, but they were even against that. I mean, that was the reason for the casus belli for uh, Yanukovych and Crimea. We don't even here in the we don't even have referenda on whether a country can join the EU, which is a big deal, rather than something as piddly as you know an association agreement. Yet, full force attack on on Ukrainians and you know really massive disinformation, which led to actually the referendum being defeated. Uh, and then next year we saw the Brexit referendum. Unfortunately, the UK government has has uh, won't release the report on the intervention of Russia. I mean, there are several reasons for that. None of them good. And then you saw the election in the United States in 2016. So, I mean, they cut their teeth on on Ukraine with their disinformation activities. A, a bit of a, a sidebar. Um, something that I learned in Reeves before the war, um, the chant lock her up, which became a big thing in 2015 and 2016, um, didn't start in the United States that that started in 2013 in Ukraine um, and was just recycled for a United States audience. Well, that was the big problem. You had Yulia uh, Timoshenko. I mean, I had one of the last, last discussions with Yanukovych on the issue of the association agreement, uh, Angela Merkel said, well, maybe he'll listen to you, <laughs> uh, that we won't do this unless Yulia gets released. And um, so it was all about Yulia being locked up. Final question here. What does Ukraine need to win this war against Russia? Well, a lot more serious armaments, really. I mean, Western tanks, it needs various forms of, of armor. 
lots of ammunition. I mean, these are all the standard kind of things. It needs bolder thinking on the part of of the West and also militarily. I mean, you know, there's just another piece yesterday about how, well, you know, we really don't want to give them weapons that were, which would enable them to strike strike Russia. I go, look at this, wait a minute. The Russians are bombing civilians with impunity with, I mean, and and you're told, and well, we're not going to give you weapons for them to give back. I, I would, you know, I would say that uh, basically you can do a lot against Russia. And then a third thing, which I would see is, I don't know, somebody who knows who, but certainly not the Ukrainians because they lack the range. But certainly I would, I, my question is, is it escalation if you decide to take out the factory that makes Shahids? I mean, there are a lot of countries that have, have sort of are annoyed enough with Iran and have a grudge with them for their for Iran's behavior that would say, well, okay, you know what, I mean, what does it take? A few, a few missiles? I mean, you know where the factories are, just like, boom. Um, so Ukraine will, have, first of all, has to win. It can't be held back saying, oh, no, no, you can't go into Crimea. This is the big worry. Oh, my God, what happens if they go into Crimea? Saying, um, Russia is not going to start World War III when they've actually started this war. It's their war. I would just say pound the hell out of them using whatever method you can to cause greater... I mean, I think you can do to Russia what Russia can't do to Ukraine, which is convince the Ukrainians to abandon their efforts. Ukraine is a consolidated nation Russia is an atomized bardak, which if you know what the word bardak means, it's, um, I mean, it's not a nice word, <clears throat> but it's a perfect descri this, uh, description of how things work. I mean, all, the whole fiasco of this, of this invasion, you know, like, is, means it's a bardak, you know, sending, sending troops in with unprepared, don't know where they're going, with insufficient logistical support, with cheap tires that <laughs> immediately deflate. I mean, it's a bardak. And then the only claim they have to any kind of anything is that nuclear arsenal. So that's one thing. My bigger worry is that the post-World War II settlement of aggression being um, forbidden, the changing of borders uh, through use of force. I mean, it's like the, it's the core of the UN Charter repeated over and over again in various international documents, including the Helsinki Final Act of 1975 and the Paris Charter of 1990, and upon which actually the incredibly naive Budapest Memorandum was based as well. Um, I mean, First, I mean, Ukraine not only gave up its nuclear weapons, it also, which was the third largest arsenal in the world, but they also gave up their long-range bombers and their missiles, which are now being employed against Ukraine. Same missiles. I mean, missiles that the Ukrainians gave up. They sort of scratch off the serial numbers. So, But if, if you scratched off the serial numbers of only certain missiles, then you know those are part of the missile ar arsenal that was, went out. Having, having 
pledged to respect uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity and perpetuity. Now, people need to also get wrapped their heads around is that because of the failure of the UK and the US to back up the Budapest Memorandum, which is the kind of like their original sin, will haunt the world for centuries because what country would ever, ever, ever give up their nuclear weapons after they've seen the failure of the Budapest Memorandum guaranteeing the territorial integrity of Ukraine in perpetuity, and the U.S. and the U.K. just sit there and go, dum, 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 yeah, well, you know, oops. I mean, nuclear proliferation is a fact. It will continue. Uh, and, okay, right now we have Pakistan and um, North Korea exhibiting kind of rogue behavior, but would you ever convince either country to give up nuclear weapons in return for security guarantees? And think of what happens in the future. What if Brazil decides to go get one? Argentina. I mean, all these countries have, you know, have are basically completely nuclear capable if they so desired. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, we know that Israel probably does have one. And uh, South Africa had actually had a sort of nascent nuclear weapons program. I mean, why do the Saudis want to do it, right? I mean, you know, there's no, um, there's no reason why others can't do it. And by failing to, in this local war, frankly, failing to stand up for Ukraine to defend it against aggression, you have basically screwed the world, uh, no matter where it is. Philippines, whatever, I don't know. Uh, Mexico, any country that wants to develop nuclear weapons uh, and do it the way Iran is doing it, which is um, basically secretly, you know, sub rosa until you, it's a fait accompli, as it was in the case of uh, India and Pakistan. I mean, just like one day, whoops, look, they're a nuclear power. Um, all these things are possible today around the world and and no one's going to even give up their weapons after the failure of the Budapest Memorandum. So thanks a lot. <laughs> and Tomas, I have to say that I, I believe that the failure to meet the promises of the Budapest Memorandum will result in nuclear proliferation because a powerful message has been sent to the world. Um, if you have nuclear weapons... You can do kind of whatever you want to do. One of the things that we talk about on the podcast from time to time, uh, you know, is the mutually assured destruction instability paradox um, with mutually assured destruction being if you use them, then we use them and we're both destroyed. The paradox comes into play with, but because we have them, we can kind of do whatever we want because you're never going to use yours because then we're both destroyed. So I now just have a big stick to do whatever I want. And I think that's what we see the Russian Federation doing today. I will say this much, just to be positive, that I have not felt as positive about a country as I do regarding Ukraine since the early 90s about my own country. And I, and, um, you know, when you see my own country, I mean, being the biggest per capita donor and with 
Our population has increased by 6% since February, and nary a complaint from Estonians, from Estonians, nary a complaint, and we love Ukrainians. You could see my farm since uh, last September has flown a Ukrainian flag here, so long before the war. And I took in two refugees, people who fled. I mean, I'm, and I'm no, I'm nothing special here. I mean, the attitude towards Ukraine is extremely positive. I think I am, I'm so, I'm completely filled with optimism on what Ukraine will be like once uh, the war is over. It will be very hard. It will be extremely hard. Uh, huge obstacles, but you, given what the Ukrainians have shown in the past several years, but especially during this war, I'm convinced it will be a major power in Europe. And this is one reason why there are countries in Western Europe that really don't want to have Ukraine in the European Union or NATO, because they realize that you know once you have um, Ukraine and Poland, you already have more people than in Germany. And then the rest of us, the small guys, the little ones, as Sarkozy called us when uh, we flew to Tbilisi in 2008, when Russia invaded Georgia. And that is the difference between Eastern and Western Europe. You know, basically, utter complacency about the Russian invasion of Georgia on the part of Western Europe, aside from France, because they were... The, it was a chance for France to shine because it was the EU presidency of France when it took place. But he went back on his word on everything anyway. But when uh, we went there and Kaczynski, uh, President Kaczynski got together with Sarkozy, he said, I'll meet with you, but not the little ones. Well, the little ones plus Poland and Ukraine represent the new direction of Europe which is a lot more muscular on defense, which is um, much much less anti-American than, uh, than Western Europe. So I think that um, Ukraine has a brilliant future, and I'm certainly, you know, I mean, I'm pretty old now, but I mean, I'm perfectly happy to do whatever I can do to, to help Ukraine become a superstar. Tomas, I want to thank you so much for your time. I deeply appreciate it. I know our audience has found this discussion that we've had enlightening. And once again, thank you. You can follow Tomas Hendrik Ilves on Twitter at Ilves Tomas. That's I-L-V-E-S-T-O-O-M-A-S. Or on Mastodon at Tomas underscore Ilves at mastodon.social. Join me again later this week as we jump back into our regular updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.